and welcome to the Cinema in Seconds podcast. This is the podcast where we look at small moments in great movies. And this week we are looking at recent movies all the way back to 2021. My name is Ian. And I'm Daniel. And yeah, it's going to be our best of the year show, I suppose. So um, yeah, Daniel, you... This is kind of your idea, the way that we're going to run this. Why don't you kind of let everybody know how we're going to go about our best of the year show? Yeah, so I thought it'd be fun to model it after how Siskel and Ebert used to do their top 10 uh, episodes, where instead of just going through, well, in, in general, I've always admired, especially now in like the era of online movie podcasts and videos, going back and watching Siskel and Ebert, how precise and economic they are with their time, where they have really thorough and interesting conversations about movies and we'll also burn through like five or six reviews in a 22 minute episode it's unfathomable to me that they're able to do that um usually our intros go longer than 22 minutes yeah so so i'm but the top tens what they what they do that i think is really smart is instead of going through the list you know 10 through one and talking about all of them which could be up to 20 movies depending on how different their picks are they would pick a couple each that they would talk about going back and forth and then reveal their whole list. So they might talk about their eighth, their third, and then their number one, and then, uh, you know, going back and forth and then you'd get the whole list from both. And I thought that'd be a fun way to do uh, our top 10 lists and still try to couch it in our gimmick, our uh, podcast gimmick of cinema and seconds, little moments. So yeah, we got to keep up appearances. Yeah. <laughs> we have to pretend that we're, <laughs> that the show has a theme um but it's tough because these movies aren't really available for us to you know go back and watch rewatch these moments necessarily but yeah we'll do our best yeah and the good thing though i find is that it does help give us like some structure just in talking about these films of and the flip side like it's hard because they're they're not available for us to just rewatch or like really find specific parts and also I think for most of us, we've only seen these movies once. Yeah. Um, I did see your, your number one. I saw twice, actually, but uh, but I'm not talking about it, so it's not very useful to me in the circumstances. <laughs> but uh, but the the flip side is that you know we've only seen these films once. We don't necessarily have the ability to just go back and rewatch them. So having to zero in on like a specific thing helps guide us in terms of just being like overwhelmed by you know our memories of the whole so that should help uh i don't know give us something interesting to say about each film yeah it'll guide the conversation i think yeah so 2021 how do you feel about the year overall in movies i feel yeah talk about everything else well it was a tough year no uh (laughs) i feel pretty good about it movie wise i mean this list is i'm happy with my list it's not complete um there's a couple stuff that's even available to me now that i just haven't got around to yet like the power of the dog which has been like it's probably the most widely acclaimed film that i haven't got to yet uh don't look up which is the most (laughs) widely (laughs) annoying film that i haven't got to yet uh stuff like tick tick boom like there's a lot of stuff that's currently available to me that i just haven't found the time for and then there's also stuff like Red Rocket and the tragedy to Macbeth that just hasn't opened around me yet. And yeah. given that theaters in my province just closed, will not be opening around me probably ever. Um, 
So, so it's frustrating on some level to make the list without seeing those films, especially, you know, especially stuff like Macbeth and Red Rocket, because those are directors who tend to make my lists. Yeah. But all the same, I, I had to make some tough cuts. Like I even have an honorable mention. I'll probably have to insist on mentioning because I did feel bad that it didn't make the top 10. So how about you? Yeah, this for me, this has been the year of the three and a half star movie. <laughs> it's like <laughs> movies that are, you know, good, enjoyable, but nothing either, nothing that makes them stand out or their great parts are counterbalanced by a lot of big flaws as well. Like those that seem to be the types of movies that I saw a lot this year. Interesting. And I found it a frustrating year because in summer I was like dying to go see stuff. And there just wasn't a whole lot out there in the summer. And then in, when fall kicked in, suddenly all these interesting movies started popping up and I'm back at school and I'm coaching and I'm, you know, and I have no time to go see them. And then suddenly they're out of theaters in like two weeks. Cause unless, unless you're a superhero movie, you don't stay in theaters very often, very long. And that's that. And so I've been struggling to see as much as I can in like the last two or three weeks of the year, honestly. So it's been frustrating in that sense. But as far as quality of the movies, I'd say there's a few that really stood out for me. But even in my top 10 list, like there's the bottom of my top 10 list is still a little iffy. Like there's, I think once I see a few more movies that I have not had the ability to see, they might get kicked off, but that's where we're at. It seems like your number one is pretty well locked in, though. That one's entrenched, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel pretty similar about my number one. Like, it's, you never know. Certainly the stuff that's, uh, um, that I haven't seen, there's enough there to suggest it could knock out my number one. But I also really love my number one, yeah. so so we that's will see. Likely. Yeah. All right. Well, shall we get this started? I can, uh, I can start us off. Let's rock and roll. Um, so from the first one I'm going to talk about, I'm actually I'm cutting out the bottom half of my list entirely. And I know Roger uh, Ebert and Siskel, they would, you know, try to be a little bit more spaced out in their picks, but whatever. I'm going to go <laughs> with my number five pick, which is uh, a movie that's playing on Apple Plus and maybe only there. It's called Coda. Did you see this, Dan? I have not seen it. No, no you haven't seen it. Okay. Uh, Koda is a story about a, a girl, a teenage girl, who is the only speaking person in her family. Everybody else is deaf, her brother and her two parents. And so, and I think that's what Koda stands for. It's like children of deaf adults, I believe. And uh, it's, it's a real, it's just a nice, touching movie. Like it's, um, it's it's interesting because it's one of those ones that might that can just so easily get lost in the ether because I, I don't know that there's a I think they're for a small segment of people this is going to be a very very important movie for them that they're gonna love for years and years and years and for everybody else it's probably gonna drift away at some point but it's a very good watch and I highly recommend it to everybody um the the moment I'm going to talk about is the interesting thing that they throw into this movie is not only is this girl, the only one in her family that, that speaks and hears um, she finds out that she's actually a really good singer. 
And so she ends up getting this, having this gift that she's trying to uh, nurture and her family can't experience it, right? They, they have no, they cannot hear how great her voice is. And there is a scene where they, the family goes to watch her rehearsal, like see her in, in concert. And of course, eventually it kicks in so that you are, the music cuts out and you're just watching it the way they are, but with incomplete silence, which is an interesting idea in and of itself. Um, Cause it puts you in their perspective that this is what they're seeing and they're not, you know, getting a lot out of this. And it's even to the point where they just start having regular conversations with each other. Cause they're not, they can't, uh, they can't hear anything. Um, so they don't really know what's going on. And then there's a, a really good point where her father He's, he, he starts watching her and then he starts noticing all the other people around him in the audience and seeing how they react. And they're, they're watching all these other people kind of smile and, and like some are getting teared up because I mean, this girl is a really good singer. Um, and it's, it's interesting because then you start to piece together he, how he can experience his daughter's gift by seeing the reaction in everybody around him. And I just thought that was a fantastic, um, fantastic way to visually show how this, how this uh, father can connect with his daughter in an interesting way. And I think I thought it was really well done. And another good thing is they do, they don't ever kind of like, he, he ends up talking to his daughter and, you know, basically saying, I support you in this, but he doesn't like, do the ridiculous explanation of, well, I was at your uh, concert and this is what I saw. You don't need that. It's right. It's uh, it's a show don't tell thing that I think is just, a, was just a great scene and really kind of solidified this as, you know, a movie that's got just a little extra special to it. And I, yeah. So Coda is, uh, yeah, it's on Apple plus. I highly recommend it. Nice. Um, yeah, I, I haven't seen the film, so I can't offer too much commentary or response, but I do I do like what you highlight here. And I think it's, there's an interesting sort of, uh, there's something really heartwarming and beautiful about, you know, him having a window into uh, his daughter's abilities that he wouldn't have otherwise. But it's also, I think, and I don't know how much the, the film plays into this, an element of it being a little sad and tragic too, though, that he has to yeah. kind of experience it secondhand. Yeah, so. absolutely. Um, by the way, I'm going to say Amelia Jones, I just looked her up, is the actress the, the who plays the girl. And like, it's her actual singing voice. And both her acting and her singing were incredible. Like this, I think this is a absolutely like this is a star making performance if enough people see it the only problem mm -hmm. is, is i don't know that enough people are going to see it well and it sounds like she's not getting any real awards consideration either which seems odd given she had to learn as far as i understand she had to learn to sign specifically yeah. for this role she's not speaking in her natural accent and she has to also sing like not to I don't say think that she was a natural singer either like i think she was most of her singing came from singing lessons in preparation for the role too interesting i i wonder why they're not maybe they don't have the budget for it maybe they don't have the faith in it but i wonder why apple tv's not pushing it more as a potential awards contender because it has enough of a narrative that um one would think i mean again i haven't seen the film but taking your word for it that the performance is that good 
that plus the narrative surrounding it, you would think they might try to, I don't know, promote that a little more. Yeah, but I would think so. Yeah, especially I, because like Oscar nominations would really help something like this find an audience. And I think, yeah, I, I think that Apple TV is hurting it because who, like not a lot of people, it's not a, it's not a service that is talked about a lot, at least. No. And people, people get it because they're like, oh, I get a free month because I got an iPhone or whatever. But there's not a lot on there that people are watching. And outside of Ted Lasso, I don't think I've ever heard anyone talk about it in yeah. any capacity. Yeah, which is too bad. But so maybe they're saving their uh, Oscar budget for Macbeth. I don't know, which is why I'll end up seeing this movie because I'll need to get Apple TV Plus to see that. Right. So then when I have that, it's like, well, what else am I going to watch here? So, and I don't I know if there's it. much else outside of, I guess there's that movie Finch, I think. Yeah. Is yeah. that any good? I don't know. I only had the week, <laughs> the free week, and I didn't, so I didn't get that <laughs> one in. Oh, well. Yeah. Cool. I think this is actually the only thing I watched on there. Well, it sounds like it was a good use of your free week. It was. Nice. That was my All number right. five. All right. Well, I will uh, change gears pretty drastically um, with my number six film, The Matrix Resurrections. Now, Ian, as far as I know, you have not seen this film. I have seen it. You have seen it? Yes, I have seen it. Okay. I did not realize. Okay. So I don't have to be as worried about not spoiling things for you. I still think I'll speak relatively vague about this because I don't want to it's available on HBO max. So, you know, well, if you're in Canada, that's no use, but But if you're in America, then you can watch it there. So it's readily available, but all the same, it's still pretty recent. So I won't say too, too much, but I will say it's kind of a roundabout way to get to this moment, but in the matrix reloaded, the second matrix film, there's a shot that's always stood out to me and has every time I go back to it, like makes me emotional. And it's when Trinity is at risk of dying because she entered the matrix to save Neo, even though he's had these visions that she's going to die and he realizes this and he's going to save her. And it's a moment of crisis where her, her safety is at maximum jeopardy. And there's an insert shot of Neo in the real world in the sort of that cool chair they sit in when they jack into the matrix and it's just close up of his hand gripping the um just the armrest i guess would be the best way to put it and it's just this shot of it his hand tightening as the music kind of just swells slightly and i've always found that such a perfect visual to represent sort of uh love but also this like desperate uh desire to like save someone because in some ways too like Neo and Trinity have been like this defining romance of the series on paper. There's not much there. They're not that well-developed as characters, but I think the Wachowskis visually sell the romance a lot more strongly. And so I've always loved that shot. I've every time I see it, it's like this Pavlovian thing where I get choked up as soon as I see (laughs) Neo grip the seat. And in the matrix resurrections, there are multiple shots of that. There are so many shots of, grabbing things or fist tightening and also just hand holding between Neo and Trinity or trying to hold hands and being pulled apart. And I think what I respond to there, one, it feels like the movie was made for me where it's like someone realized that one shot in Matrix Reloaded is just like perfect. <laughs> Let's do that constantly. So I felt very seen. Um, 
but the other reason I, again, is I think it gets to the core of what the matrix resurrections is, which is this for all the ways that it's the cynical meta movie about reboots and the franchisation of um, modern media and the ways that uh, art becomes sort of soulless and uh, a commodity to be sold. It is also kind of this really big, sincere, simplistic in a lot of ways, love story. And I find that this is such a pure visual to represent that. So yeah, that's, uh, and it's, it's good because in a lot of ways, the actual action in the Matrix Resurrections is not all that good. I don't think it's as bad as some people are uh, making it out to be, but it's, it's generally exceptional for the most part. Yeah. I think by the standards of like, honestly, most other modern films, it's fine. Yeah. Um, even well, when you're it's comparing not... it to the Matrix, which is yeah, even the you know, sequels that people follow. Yes, and even the sequels that people act like are quite bad. Although I'm a known defender of them, I think even a lot of its critics will agree that isolated action scenes are still very well shot and edited and choreographed. And that's not really the case here, but that simple human core story I do find really compelling. And uh, I don't know, shots of hands either grabbing something tight or almost touching each other it just sells it sells it beautifully you're right that that's ultimately what saves this movie i think is that relationship so and because they do do such a good job of building up the you know the connection between neo and trinity and especially and like the entire movie rests on that this entire movie rests on that connection so it's good that they have those cues for sure uh, because I would even say even the meta stuff that they do feels a little, I don't know. I didn't, I, I thought it was clunky. <laughs> like yeah. there's, there's a couple scenes in particular. Um, it rides a line. <laughs> yeah. Uh, For sure. But, but it, what ended up making me walk out of the theater saying, I like that movie. It was Neo and Trinity. Like, mm-hmm. absolutely. It was those two. This is going to sound like a weird comparison at first, but it almost reminds me of um, RoboCop where, you know, when people talk about RoboCop, they tend to talk about the satirical elements, um, which makes sense. It's probably the strongest elements of the film. But I think part of why RoboCop holds up the best of sort of Paul Verhoeven's movies and more than something like Starship Troopers, which is also a very good movie, in my opinion, is that in addition to the ways the sort of uh, satire and the cynical attitude, there is a strong core human story in RoboCop that um, means that it's not just this sort of mean-spirited cynical film about uh 80s corporate culture there is a strong human connection to it and i think there's something similar going on here where um even i who like the meta stuff if the movie was just that i think it would feel almost mean (laughs) and uh and maybe not just mean but just so cynical that it's just kind of draining but adding in that really human story um and i think it ties into some of the ways the film's uh, exploring its themes of sort of franchises and the sort of difference between uh, art that has a personal a personal and emotional connection and art that's just, you know, fulfilling uh, a content requirement, essentially. So, yeah, yeah. holding hands. <laughs> and I think it just gets to the core, too, that, like, again, for as much as the Wachowskis have been, like, these you know, the, the Matrix films are like these dense philosophical films and they're also rooted in a lot of like hardcore geek influences. 
And it would be easy to think of them as just like these um, sort of like obsessive nerds. And they are that. They're also, they've always been like really emotional filmmakers that lean on like this sort of simple, big, extravagant romance that they play with 100% sincerity from the very beginning. Like the fact that the first Matrix has Trinity revive Neo with like a Snow White-esque kiss is, you know, it's quite silly and it's always been there. And I like that. And I like that this film wears it on its sleeve. Yeah, and I think it, like, uh, we won't talk spoilers, but at the end, I think where they end up taking it at the end really works. Like, I think what they're saying and recontextualizing certain aspects about the first movie and kind of, you know, shifting what that meant, I guess. I don't know. Maybe I'm being too vague here, but uh, I think that it works really well. Mm-hmm. The one there's one shot I absolutely love in this movie with Trinity. It's the one where I think it's in the trailer, but you have no context for when it's in the trailer. But I can't give the context because then I'm saying what's happening to her at the time. But it's the one where she kind of like she's surrounded by people and then she almost like vibrates mm-hmm. and you can see like kind of these apparitions of herself around her. Oh, it's such a great, great visual shot that I, I love it. Which is another good example of how people saying like the action in this film is bad. It's like, there's still so much creative visual ideas in a lot of these action scenes. The, the bit that involves instead of uh, agents taking over people's bodies in the matrix, they just turn on swarm mode. There's a bit where, you know, these husks are just hurling themselves out the window, crashing at Neo and Trinity, or it's like, that's such a disturbing visual. And it's also just weird. It's just Mm -hmm. a weird type of (laughs) event to happen in an action scene. Um, yeah, and I think that uh, it, that goes a long way to redeeming some of the more haphazard choreography is that there's still unique visual ideas within that uh, within those scenes. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, good pick. Okay. How far well, up your list are we moving? Straight I'm going to up pretty two? high. I'm going up to number two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Yeah, we're going to talk about a movie that I'm pretty sure you're a big fan of too, which is uh, Ridley Scott's The Last Duel. I sure am. Yeah. And this is... Love The Last Duel. And for those who um, who don't know, it's a historical drama, which is just in and of itself kind of nice to have. And uh, and yeah, so it stars, you know, the, the Wonder Boys, uh, <laughs> Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. And... Um, also Jodie Comer, is that how you say her name? I think so. I think, yeah. And, um, Kylo Ren. Adam Driver. (laughs) My goodness. (laughs) (laughs) And Kylo Ren. So they're, anyway, this is historical drama about these, these two friends who kind of end up becoming rivals in medieval France. And, but eventually it leads to um the one the one guy's wife matt damon's jody comer who's who ends up marrying matt damon um and then there's an assault right by uh kylo ren (laughs) adam driver and and so he you know he assaults her he rapes her and so the movie is kind of built around well it's kind of like a rashomon thing right where it's we see the perspective of three stories, but it's also not at the same time. I, I don't know that it's a exact, like it, it's got the different viewpoints, but there's definitely differences with Rashomon. Um, 
And what I found really interesting and that worked really well is how similar the stories were. And I think that was, that's a big strong point. And by the way, it's not boring. It's not like a case where you're watching the same story being told three times and it gets repetitive. It isn't because they mix a whole bunch of different scenes because there's some certain scenes where some characters aren't even there at all. And so there's lots of new stuff each time, but the times where they do cross over um, and specifically uh, the rape scene in question, what's so fascinating about that is just how similar the stories actually are, but it's just those little details um, where Adam Driver's character is just putting his own spin on it. And so one of the, there's one visual cue. So if anybody hasn't seen it, look for this. It's, it's when she's kind of running away from him up the stairs. And in Adam Driver's story, she kind of slips off her shoes and then goes upstairs. And so he's kind of taking, that's just a very small thing. You might be blinking, you miss it. But in his perspective, he's probably, he's seeing that as an invitation. And then on her side, when you see her story, you see the exact same scene happening, but she's like stumbling and her shoes just kind of fall off. Right. Cause in her, in her scramble to, to get away from this guy. And it's only those small little differences that kind of, you see things from their different perspective that I think makes this a really, really strong film and work on a number of levels. Yeah. I think you're right on the money. And I think what you highlight about this scene in particular, that like they are very similar, but the emphasis and tone is what makes the difference. What each character is paying attention to. And I like that you point out that it's similar to Rashomon uh, and very similar in fact, because Rashomon is also centered around um, a rape as well at the sort of core of all its stories. But Oftentimes people have talked about Rashomon and said, oh, it's a film about the variations in perspective. No, it's not. Rashomon's about lying. <laughs> there's the yeah. discrepancies in the stories are so vast that there's no way that at least some of these characters or more likely all of them are lying to some extent, whether that's just to themselves or uh, to others, whether they're consciously aware or not, they are intervening and manipulating the events. Whereas this film there's no sort of external framing device for contextualizing these stories as something that's yep. being told to someone. So we're meant to understand each of these events as being how this character perceives what has happened. Um, and yeah, I think, which to me makes it one of the more interesting versions of the, the Rashomon framework uh, because of that, because it really does capture like this idea of uh, differences in perspective in a way that even the original sort of source of this type of story doesn't uh, in the same way. And th this is sort of a perfect example. And it is, it's a scene that's hard to talk about in some ways because it's, it's not excessively graphic, but it is still an upsetting scene. And, uh, but to watch those two sequences, the Adam Driver telling and the Jodie Cormer telling really, uh, there's so much, despite the fact that they are virtually the same on sort of broad beats they feel so starkly different in the moment and in a way that actually makes you rethink a lot more one thing one detail i really like is that in the scenes with ben affleck and adam driver where they have these sort of uh sex and orgy parties with uh you know multiple young women 
the women in those scenes, you don't get a lot of detail from them, but they seem like perfectly willing and eager participants. But after these sequences, you start to kind of reflect on those earlier scenes and think, well, how, how willing were they? Like how much are they, you know, having a good time and how much is that just because that's all that uh, Adam Driver and Ben Affleck's characters are seeing in those moments. Um, And the detail with the shoes is, is really remarkable in terms of how um, on some level you could argue the, the driver account is not lying about what happens it is just a sort of difference in perception because he's not accounting for this being anything other than uh a game for him like he can't even perceive it another way yeah there's even a certain moment that mirrors exactly like with the table with uh with the previous scenes with the other with the other women too which Mm -hmm. i found was an interesting it makes it makes you make that connection too so yeah very good movie yes well worth seeing it's uh it's not all that surprising that it didn't do well financially but if you haven't seen it highly highly recommended yeah these are the kind of movies that are disappearing which is which is sad Mm -hmm. yeah and it's also sad that um this film in the sort of discussion surrounding it got dragged as being well why would anyone want to go see a rape movie and blah 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 and it's like i don't want to dismiss people being uncomfortable going to see that kind of story because that's totally fair but it was a little bit disheartening one this this sort of idea that like why would anyone go to see a movie that's not just like escapism it's just fundamentally depressing yeah um so you know that sucks but also the way that the film was kind of dismissed is like for the ways it was using rape as a story device from people who hadn't seen the film because it's one of the most thoughtful and nuanced depictions i can think of of sexual violence and particularly the way it's perceived by society because what ends up happening in the sort of um the way that her life becomes in jeopardy for making this accusation and how the film so clearly details how traumatic it can be to um for survivors to come forth with accusations and in some ways it's there's a sort of historical charge to it because you know if uh Matt Damon loses the titular last duel she's seen as guilty and she's going to be killed horribly so that obviously adds a certain layer to it but even just having to relive the trauma of it in court in her um uh having to retell those events having to be cross-examined on the basis of like you know for example she calls him handsome in another scene and that's not to him but to others so that scene is casting doubt on the validity of her story um you know, there, there's so much there about how thoughtful this film is in terms of uh, framing, uh, depicting rather uh, sexual violence. And in the scene itself, again, we've talked about it. It's it's an upsetting scene to watch, but it's not gratuitous and it is not the least bit because sometimes filmmakers struggle with uh, filming scenes of sexual violence and end up falling back on certain eroticizing imagery. This does not do that at all. Uh, especially not uh, the second uh, variation on that event. So yeah, it's a pretty remarkable film. One of Ridley's best in a long time. So yeah, I agree. I can't even remember the last like banger that I can remember. <laughs> I like The Martian oh. a lot. All right. The Martian was good. 
And then after the, but before that, I'd say as far back as Kingdom of Heaven, which I know some people don't like, but oh, having kinda, only seen the director's cut, I think it's awesome. I kind of love Prometheus, so. Oh, that's true. You're a, you're a Prometheus head. <laughs> I am. I, I do like Prometheus. I'm also a, a modest Alien Covenant defender. I think because I love Prometheus so much, I'm not a big fan of that one. <laughs> <laughs> I think my Alien Covenant defense just boils down to like, Eh, Ridley's having a great time just doing all the alien stuff in the film is kind of bad, but everything else is kind of weird and neat. So, well, speaking of directors having a great time, why don't we uh, go to your next pick? All righty. So, my number three, we're sticking with uh, old auteurs who have been churning out great films for decades now Steven Spielberg's West Side Story, a film that I wasn't super excited about for the longest time in part because I saw West Side Story, the 1961 film pretty young. I mean, not that young, but young enough that I didn't have a good attitude about musicals and was very dismissive of it. I rewatched that film a couple of weeks ago and yeah, young me was completely wrong. It's a fantastic movie, but um, Spielberg's remake is an amazing, I would put it next to the, Suspiria remake from a couple years ago of how a remake doesn't have to necessarily top the original film so much as it has to be suitably different and yet still equally creative to really justify itself because I don't think overall this film is better than the 1961 film although certain aspects I think it does better Um, but it's so specific in its vision for the material that differs from the 1961 version it's so confident in its filmmaking it has beautiful cinematography um amazing details and spielberg's ability to craft set pieces and in fact the the fact that the man spent you know decades making action movies really helps i love the way that the opening dance number sort of weaves in and out from like dance scene to fist fight to full-on chase sequence it was marvelous to just sit in a theater and be like this is great. Or in cool when it becomes like a skirmish about who has this gun. And it's like, this is the best fight scene of the year. And it's not even a fight <laughs> scene. This is great. But the moment I'm selecting is actually totally dialogue based and uh, refers to tone. So, and that's kind of a long way to get to it, but the moment itself is when Anita arrives to tell Tony that, um, about the plans with Maria and, you know, to run off together. And famously, uh, she doesn't end up seeing Tony and the uh, other jet boys try to assault her. And it's stopped by, uh, by Valentine. So, but before that happens, Anita first arrives and the character uh, whose name is anyone's, I think, let me just double check this. Anybody's. Okay. The character anybody's stops them outside and just says, oh, sorry, my family phone is ringing. (laughs) Okay, someone picked up, so I'm good to keep talking. Um, Anybody stops Anita at the door and just says one word and to Anita. He says, leave. So we'll get to that in a second, but I want to back up a little bit and talk about the anybody's character who has always been in West Side Story and has historically been framed as like a tomboy character. You know, she wants to be part of the gang, but they're very dismissive because it's like, hey, you're a girl. You can't be a jet. Get out of here. That's how they talk. Um, (laughs) But then 
they have this sort of moment of proving themselves and eventually are kind of treated with like slightly more respect, but they're kind of dismissed outright. And in this adaptation, Tony Kushner, the screenwriter, and Spielberg have made the character rather overtly a trans man. They don't say it out loud in dialogue, but it's very clear that that's what they're doing with the character, which is a really thoughtful and timely update. And there's even a line in right before Officer Krupke where one of the characters, one of the other Jets talks about how they've pantsed anybody's in the, in the past to prove their gender. So he's been the victim of a form of sexual assault, which matters in the interpretation of this scene. Because I love the way, especially knowing where the scene is going, if you're familiar with the musical, when anybody says leave, you could read it as just like, they hate the sharks, they're racist, they, you know, they referring to the whole group of jets, uh, you know, they want her gone and they despise her. But at the same time, knowing that this character has been victimized by this group in misogynist ways in the past, you can also very much read it as a warning. It's like, this will not end well for you. They will hurt you in horrible ways. And I think that's reinforced because um, one of the other characters, Riff, his girlfriend is in the scene. And she is one of the first to be openly hostile to Anita at the start. But then as the other boys start to, it becomes very clear this is leading to uh, a scene of sexual violence. You actually see the Jet girlfriend's start to defend Anita because they know what's happening and there's sort of alignment switches based on gender before they're thrown out of the room and it becomes just the the boys attempting to rape her before they're stopped and I love this scene because there's so much detail in such a simple moment it's one line of dialogue leave and yet the context that has brought us to this point and the context afterwards gives so much depth and thoughtfulness to it. And I also love the way that it it speaks to so many intersecting levels of uh, identity in terms of how these characters relate to each other and then stop to relate to each other based on uh, what's happening. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, incredibly thoughtful and it it's one of the sort of ways that um, the film, I think it feels very critical of the characters even in ways that the 1961 version uh i don't want to say wasn't but wasn't to the same extent so anyway that's my moment yeah. i never really put that much thought into that line i i just automatically took it as a warning mm. like right off the bat but but yeah I, you're right <laughs> there's there's a lot more layered on top of that than than there is so you so in this this uh, movie full of joyous and and, uh, and uh, wonderful song and dance scenes, you're going with the most serious scene in the movie. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, I guess I could have chose like, G Officer Krupke was so funny, and they moved it to a police station. What a smart update! Yeah. And I'm like, let's talk about varying levels of uh, identification and uh, violence. Yeah, I probably could have taken a lighter route here. No, but that my scene, other, that scene does hit hard. Light, so. And I, I do think that Spielberg handles it well and doesn't mm -hmm. and doesn't break the the tone necessarily that he had built up to that point. Because I think he could have easily, right? In a in a less skilled filmmaker's hands, you could have gone to the total opposite side, like um, 
yeah, you could have broken the the whole tone and mood that that whole movie had set because that's a that's a really tricky thing to to work around. But I think he does it really well. Mm-hmm. And Another what you said about oh, sir, go ahead. Yeah, what you said about the the other girls kind of you know backing her up. I I really like that detail as well too. I did like where their yeah like, their loyalties are tested and. Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah, I mean, made. It, it shows a sort of complexity about the ways in which racial violence works and how that ties into sexual violence and sort of lines of uh, alliance, as it were, get really blurry there. And I also, I think it's something salient too, and this is also true of the 1961 movie, but in the America musical number, Anita is the most vocal about America as a place of opportunity. Mm-hmm. And then she experiences this moment, which, you know, we don't see the character again after this, but one can only assume, you know, a lot of her faith in this place, as it were, is kind of shattered without, without ever really coming back to that same level of innocence. Like, how could it? Um, and that feels also like very deliberate and knowing that, you know, as in, in both versions, but in particular too, like the America in this film is this sort of, in the 1961 film it's set on a rooftop and it's like this back and forth in this it's a more vibrant sort of city wide or at least neighborhood wide uh dance number that moves through multiple layers and uh multiple uh, settings within the sort of song that for that to come crashing down in such a moment of uh bitter ugliness feels really salient so yeah that's a, yeah. that's a good point too because i also thought that like once once that scene started happening i'm like yeah and this is this is the woman who was just singing that song right and mm. so th- you definitely have that in the back of your head as as it's playing out so yeah i appreciate it too and this is more of a praise of the 61 version than than the 2021 version but thinking about you know there's a lot of complexities we could get into in terms of West Side Story's depiction of whiteness and of Puerto Rican characters that is very fraught in the 1961 film, given that a lot of it is white actors and brown face, and is still fraught in the 2021 film um, in terms of the way that it depicts Puerto Rico as Puerto Ricans and Puerto Rico is inherent in the DNA and the source material that there's flaws in that a Puerto Rican viewer would be more salient at describing. But I do think there's something really smart about the ways in which the filmmakers of this version and certainly of the original could have sort of stacked the deck more in making the jets and the white characters more noble and good. And they really don't like this scene is such a vile piece of ugliness. And I really like how in, in the 1961 version, it's implied that that's what's happening, but they don't say it outright in this one. When Valentine stops them, she does say you've grown into rapists and having that line sort of out there is like, it holds a lot of power and I think it's it shows a lot in terms of making not sort of playing with kid gloves in terms of the white heroes and making them truly ugly and villainous and making it so that uh, I don't know a lesser film especially in regard to the 61 version would have made them more innocent and this film both versions do not do that that's for sure so awesome. so Good pick your number one <laughs> all right let's do it so the number my number one pick of the year is um dune dune, dune. so it's 
I'll be honest, it's the movie I kind of expected to be my number one before I even saw it. And in fact, it is, which is kind of one of the reasons that I love it so much. Because I had, I went into this thing with insanely high expectations. <laughs> I'll be honest, I did. <laughs> the fact that I I have always loved the the novel, like I've been a big fan of the novel for, I don't know, since I was a teenager and read it the first time. Um, I was not a fan of David Lynch's movie. I didn't really care for it, but I've always been a Dune fan. I love Denny Villeneuve. I think that like Arrival is one of my favorite movies of the last 10 years. And when I heard he was on board, I got very excited. When I saw the cast and looked at all the different casting choices they made, I was very excited. When I started seeing stills and trailers, I was very excited. And so this was a movie that was that I had so much hype for. And then I saw it and it made and exceeded my expectations, which I think is why it's exceeded. At number one. Yeah. Like wow. it, it ended up being, because of course you have to go into an apprehension. Like I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that I've built this up in my head and I know that that's a bad thing to do. And so I'm worried, right. At the same time, I'm like, Oh, this is, is this going to fall apart on me? Um, but it didn't, it absolutely held up and I loved every second of it. And it is definitely my top of the year. For my moment, I'm actually going with, um, oddly enough, the design of the ornithopter. So the ornithopter is like the, this helicopter and set in this like ridiculously far ahead future time. Like I think it's supposed to be 10,000 year 10,000 or something like that. Um, but it's this helicopter on the ground, you know, on the planet level. And it's always kind of described as, it, well, they called it an ornithopter. And of course, it was described in the book, but it was always kind of hard to picture. But it, when I actually saw how this thing works, and it's got those like propeller blades that end up going oscillating back and forth, reversing each other, it's very insect-like, right? It's like a dragonfly. And I just thought it was fantastic. Like I... The way that that was conceptualized, it was a genius, uh, a genius conception. And I think that when you think about what made me love this movie so much, it was those kind of details in the actual design, the visual production design of this movie. Because I walked out of that movie and I looked at my friends and I said, I haven't been wowed by a movie like that in a long time, like just on a completely visual level. And it did that constantly, like the way that that city looked, the city of Arakeen, it was very unique. Like it's not, it did not have a look of any other city I've ever seen in science fiction or, or anything. Um, those, those details just throughout the movie just blew me away. It's a stunning, stunning looking film. Nice. Yeah. I mean, it, <laughs> I like that you you point out sort of the the way that the film wows you in a way that like a lot of blockbusters don't do. And it's been talked about elsewhere, but like special effects aren't that impressive anymore right. because like every movie has good special effects. You know, even something that's like not to be mean, but likely a relatively worthless movie, like I don't know, that rampage movie with the rock and the giant <laughs> monkey. Even that, the effects look pretty good. And that's like 
probably a C-level film in most ways, you know. So unlike in ages past, just having good special effects in and of itself is not impressive. But what is impressive about this film is the designs for one. And you, you chose a specifically good uh, example of that because it is such a unique design that you just kind of sit back and go, wow, that's really yeah. neat. Yeah. <laughs> and just thinking like, the way that it feels like thought was put into like how this would work in terms of the sort of uh, aerodynamics of it, which, you know, I have no idea how <laughs> accurate that would be, but as like a visual idea, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, and also the way Villeneuve shoots uh, the, his special effects and the way his shots are composed, like there's such a sense of grandness and scope to this movie even though the actual there's not that much in terms of like action and the action we do get is relatively modest in terms of like what's actually yeah. happening, but there's such a sort of uh, weight to how he shoots the combat. There's such a scale to the way he shoots cityscapes or, you know, dunes as it mm -hmm. were um, that it, and the score and the sound design also the go a long is way. Fantastic. Um, and it's very of, unique. Like it's, Mm -hmm. it's very of this movie which yeah it feels like it's almost like hearing the music from this culture yeah and at one point it is when you've got like the conductor of the uh Sardarkot troops what are they called something like that oh Sardarkar yes yeah. thank you I I mispronounce all my my dune stuff and I've been yelled at in my <laughs> YouTube comments for that exact thing like well I'm sorry but uh <laughs> but yeah like I there's so much just like so many details that you kind of just sit back and go, wow, like that's neat. I even thinking about, and this is something I love too, from comparing it to the, the David Lynch film where they have like this long explanation about what the Mentats are, how they're like living computers. And if you look at the lore, there's like a reason in the universe why actual computers aren't a thing. They're like yeah. these uh, um, human beings that aren't anyway, but I like how they don't talk about any of that in this movie. They ask him a question and his eyes go all white and it's like he's making calculations and he gives the answer in a very sort of um robotic matter of fact way and it's like even if you don't haven't read the book and you're not familiar with what that is you're just like oh he's like a computer or yeah. he's some sort of robot or something and it's enough that you get it and it also is just cool it as is. evidenced by the fact that, that shots become a meme so <laughs> yeah yeah i think it's I think the economy of what details we need to know about this world and what we don't, I think he's very good at as well. And that's, that's a good example of that also. Yes. Um, as I well love as that we don't meet the emperor visual. in this one because mm -hmm. we don't need to. So he can be played by David Lynch in the next movie, <laughs> which in addition to being hilarious, I actually think he would do a really good job. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I kind of want that to happen. <laughs> Well, see, my, uh, it's funny, if I, if I had done Dune, I would have had a much dumber moment for my pick, which is when we first, I, I don't know if it's when we first meet the Baron, actually, but one of the times we go to, like, um, to the Gita Prime, is that where the Harkonnens yeah. live? One of the times we go there, there's, like, this weird black bug-like creature eating food or drinking from a bowl or something, and I just remember being in the theater, and it's entirely silent, except for one of my buddies who just goes, you <laughs> and that's just movie magic that's why you, that's why we have movie theaters so 
Uh, yeah, I, I also love Dune. It's much lower on my list in part because I, I'm waiting to see if part two can also knock it out of the park because it, it is great, but it is really clearly half a movie. Yeah, um, that I, seems to be the big strike against it. I almost wanted to just like go for a pee and come back and like, all right, let's keep, keep this going. Oh, I definitely would have. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I, I, that maybe I penalized that a little bit too much on my list, but it's, uh, it's definitely one of the most impressive films of the year. And one of the most, like it, it's one of the most impressive event movies. I still have matrix higher, but in some ways it's a harder sell. Cause it's like, Dune is the event movie in terms of like pristine filmmaking and the matrix is in terms of just like weird creative choices and being so specific to one person's vision. But, uh, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So that's my number one of the year. Yeah. Likely will be unchanged no matter how much you see. (laughs) Well, I can't give you too hard a time because my number one is also very predictable. One of our friends actually, uh, said when the trailer hit, there goes Dan's favorite movie of the year <laughs> and it did and uh it's licorice pizza um I mean before it even came out I was like you know of Paul Thomas Anderson's last four movies three were my number one and now I can say of his last five four were my number <laughs> one so oh I love this movie and it's hard to kind of know where to start for um for this podcast because in some ways it's a movie tailor-made for our podcast because it is it has such an episodic narrative that a lot of it is just these little moments that add up to a greater whole uh you haven't seen the film yet i don't think no it hasn't shown up here yet at all oh yeah oh, to live in a world i really really wanted pizza. to but... <laughs> yeah it's 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 annoying that it's you know social medias are like now playing everywhere it's like no it's not nope <laughs> that's not true um which is, you know, disheartening. But I was able to sneak in one between viewing. Ontario and Saskatchewan, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, the the now our theaters are closed again, so yeah. you know, that was the price we pay, and that was what I was secretly hoping for. Is like I just I can get licorice pizza, and the theaters close, and then you know, it's fine. So there's a lot I could talk about. I could talk about how in the opening scene, which is itself like a brilliant bit of flirtation and banter, which is like it teases you in terms of this relationship and gets you invested in these characters and already outlines the tension where he's 15 and she's 25. And so it's like, I don't know how to feel about this, but I'm intrigued in watching these characters, you know, get to know each other, how that scene ends with the photographer that Alana's working for um, slapping her on the butt in this way. That's like really dismissive and demeaning and shows that, you know, the sort of casual sexism and, um, I don't know, sex pest nature of like 1970s and how that ties into the ways in which her character is sort of dealing with being desired by men and not totally sure what to do with that or how to feel about it. And also how I think one of the, I've heard this film described a lot as like, oh, it's a nostalgic film. It's a love letter to the 70s. And I don't think it is at all. If it's nostalgic for anything, I, I think it's nostalgic for being having a crush when you're young and what that feels like when you're young and the sort of agony and ecstasy and pettiness of that age and those feelings. But I don't think it's nostalgic for the time period, or at least if it is, it's tempered by a lot of the realities of the uh, sexism and racism of its day. So it's a very thoughtful nostalgia if it is there. I could talk about that. I could talk about the moment uh, after 
the big set piece in the film involving John Peters as played by Bradley Cooper, which is in itself an amazing bit of suspense. It, it's like the wages of fear, but it's like a comedy and it's set in the, the hills of, of LA. And how there's a moment afterwards that, again, I won't say too much to avoid spoilers, where you're watching one character have this moment of realization of like, what am I doing? That is so perfectly rendered visually that without a word, you like completely understand. I, uh, there's, there's so much. But I'm going to talk about this sort of general motif in the film of Gary and Alana running. There are a lot of shots of them either running together or running to find each other. And, you know... I, I recently, uh, I listened to an interview with Paul Thomas Anderson where he talked about, he was asked about all the running in the film. And he said, on some level, it's a way to create excitement when you don't have a lot of money. Uh, you know, it's like, uh, have people run, have people go somewhere, have them go somewhere fast and follow them with your camera. And it works. I mean, it's a simple trick, but it is exciting whenever they run. But I also find it such a kind of tying into my Matrix moment. I'm realizing such a pure visual expression of, um, affection and joy and uh, a sort of romantic feeling where it's like no words needed just running together like it's such an innately uh, sorry I have to cough one sec <coughs> oh <coughs> please send me money on Patreon to heal me <laughs> um, I'm keeping all this in um, it's such a sort of perfect, simple visual to express those feelings of joy that that I think get into the core of the film where on a rational level, there are aspects of the relationship that make you uncomfortable. And to be crystal clear, the film is aware of those things and it is at the forefront of it, that there is an age gap and yet the power dynamics between them are more complicated than that because Gary, who's 15, is ultimately a lot more world-weary and street smart than Alana, who lives with her parents, has a dead-end job, and seemingly has a very narrow um, world of experience to draw on. So the film is aware of those things, and it is asking you to think about that. But on some level, there's also just this joy in the friendship that they have and in the sort of mutual attraction they feel for each other. So these moments where they just run together kind of allow you to just, just breathe in and feel that. And it's such a wonderful feeling. Um, but I also think it gets to the core of sort of naive youth type of attraction this is. That it's, it's very spontaneous and very, it's very passionate and energetic, but it's also a bit shallow and more of a feeling than it is a sort of um, more thoughtful connection, uh, which I think it, it gets really well. And the fact that the act of running is itself, it's like a chaotic and... I don't know, unstable thing, at least the way I run. Um, so I do find that there's something there too, where it's not like compared that to another potentially uncomfortable relationship in Anderson's filmography, the romance and phantom thread, where like Reynolds and uh, Alma are not characters who will go running together. They're not going for a jog together. No, no. I, I love the idea of her even asking, let's go for a jog. <laughs> like, are you joking? <laughs> I'm not wearing sneakers. That, oh, He's got to make this movie now. But, you know, the way that that romance is portrayed in like very sort of mannered and um, and quiet ways versus this, which is just joyful and exuberant and, and so exciting, uh, but also, yeah, like carefree and uh, naive. Um, and to sort of, there's kind of a general theme throughout the film. So uh, 
you know, maybe it's cheating. So if I have to pick one specific moment, I will say one of the scenes of them running, one where they're actually running to each other after they've been looking for each other and can't find them. In the background of the shot is the marquee for Live and Let Die. And in terms of ways for a film to endear itself specifically to me, that'll do it. So <laughs> Licorice Pizza, the best running on film since uh, since Tom Cruise. Nice. So, yeah, I haven't seen this movie. Um, would is it? Do you see it more from one of the characters' point of views, or is it pretty even between them? Like, is it more her story, more his story? In terms of screen time, I'd say it's fairly. I'm guessing it's fairly even, but in terms of whose story it is, I think it's more hers than his. Okay. In some ways, um, she is. There's moments that Anderson focuses on her more than Gary and you're kind of the emotional alignment is kind of more rooted in her but I also think you know Gary's sort of like a weird interesting character who's like none of us are like you know he's 15 he's a child actor he has several of his own businesses his mom works for him he's super charismatic and confident even though he's like kind of an average looking kid none of us are like that we all want to be like that maybe, but none of us are. <laughs> but I think that, you know, and maybe this is because I am only a couple years older than Alana is in the story. The feeling of like being in your 20s and feeling like you should have your life together and you should be an adult, but you're not. And you don't know where to start and you want to be more of an adult, but you don't know what to do. And on some level, you actually don't want to be more of an adult because it's a sort of scary leap to make. And it's it's fun to stay what you were is the much more universally relatable feeling. Um, so ultimately, yeah, I do think it's, it's her story more than it is uh, his. And in some ways he's the more interesting personality or the more, maybe not interesting, but more uh, exceptional personality that we can use to right. actually explore her story. Gotcha. So, yeah, no, I'm looking forward to it. That's I don't so know good. when I'm going to get it. <laughs> I was really open to before. We had this show but it was not mm -hmm. to be they don't want to come over here too cold they don't want to bring the uh, <laughs> don't want to bring the reel over no well, well it, it's definitely worth a look i mean i feel like you're a bit more mixed on anderson well certainly more mixed than i am on anderson yeah. i'm like yeah he's very his point for me yeah <laughs> i think you like there will be blood i do and i think yeah, you I hate think boogie nights yeah i should probably give that one another try though but that one baffles me because that's like his most agreeable movie. <laughs> I'll probably give it another try at some point. I hate the master though. I just couldn't oh. get on board with it. And that's I know I'm definitely a minority there, but I don't know if you are, you are in, in like maybe our, well, actually I don't even know if you are in our circles because there are other cultists like me who worship at the altar <laughs> of the master, but I don't know if I ever told you miles who was on our horror movie episode. I saw the master with him. And he'd never seen an Anderson film before. And that the, already I was like, I was well into the cult. And we're watching and I'm just sitting there just like loving every second. Like, this is brilliant. It's like so well shot. The performances are to die for. The dialogue is good. It's funny. It's dramatic. It's, and I get to the, the ending and I'm like, oh, what an enigma. What a mystery What to make of this. And Miles leans over to me and go and whispers, not all of his movies are like that, are they? And I was like, <laughs> uh, you didn't like it? <laughs> <laughs> so 
I don't know if he's seen this splash since of then. cold water. <laughs> Where, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which maybe just would have reinferred my like, I'm planting my flag in this one. Yeah. That makes um, sense. This is definitely his most fun film in probably since Boogie Nights. Although I, I think well, with a movie called Licorice Pizza, I would hope it would be <laughs> have some true, sense yeah. of fun to it. The interesting thing is, though, is as much as on, on a certain level, it feels like it's a more carefree movie. And it is in, in plot. But in some ways, I think it's just as thoughtful and complex as his more ostensibly dense movies. And certainly the way that it, on some level, it's frustrating that so much of the discourse surrounding this film has like just zeroed in on like how appropriate or inappropriate is the age gap and does the film adequately address that. I do actually think there's a lot of intricacies in terms of the way that that relationship is handled um, and a lot of thoughtfulness that, I don't know, shows how thoughtful a filmmaker he is that even when he's making his lighter comedy, and I think this is a full-on comedy, it's still that thoughtful. And it is in the filmmaking too. Like the, the first scene where they meet is like a series of tracking shots that are a lot less showy than the tracking shots that he was doing at the beginning of his career, but do, I mean, they're, they're complex shots that are beautiful to look at and so perfectly bring you into this relationship or like, one of the first times we see the Tom Waits character who's playing this uh, filmmaker who friend of the show, Michael has speculated is based on Sam Peckinpah, which I agree with. I think that probably is who it is. Um, there's scenes of him like emerging from this bar, you know, shrouded in darkness, sort of covered with smoke that it's like, this is amazing to look at. Like, this is just as beautiful as like any image in Phantom Thread or in the master maybe not as beautiful those movies have some that 70 millimeter goes a long way but um it's still like an astoundingly gorgeous movie even if it's not as uh sort of announcing itself as like a great cinematography movie in the way that some of his other films have in the past awesome yeah he's definitely an eclectic filmmaker like each of his movies feel quite a bit different than the one before it mm -hmm. like i think he's yeah he's got he's got a pretty secure handle on what he's dealing with but when you look at like licorice pizza to phantom thread to inherent mm -hmm. vice like yeah you kind of don't know what what's coming next right which is yeah just kind of neat yeah. yeah and like there's certain there's certain uh thematic <clears throat> parallels i mean i think that the master phantom thread and licorice pizza in a way form a really good trilogy of like movies about codependent relationships mm-hmm and relationships that are kind of unhealthy, but you also do feel like these characters in their own bizarre way do actually care about each other. And you kind of want to see them maybe not make it, but work out something because there is that affection and you kind of, well, I mean, maybe you don't like watching them in the master, but I do. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, stylistically, they're also like a million miles removed from each other. He kind of reminds me a lot. And this is the most fanboyish possible thing to say about him of Stanley Kubrick, where there's a clear style and vision and thematic yeah. occupations throughout but the longer he goes the more he's willing to just jump into different genres and tones um yeah so. that's a good comparison i think for sure can't wait for his horror movie although i guess we kind of got it with there will be blood <laughs> that's that's kind of a horror movie without being a horror movie at all so right. yeah. all right yeah you're number one yeah, neither of us were the least <clears throat> bit surprising to our friends no. and families. We did exactly what everyone would have expected us to do. Yep. Well, I guess we can uh, run down our lists, eh? 
You ready? I guess so. Okay, I'll start her off again. Uh, the bottom of my list, definitely some some room for movement there because I haven't seen Licorice Pizza. Um, so that's like one of the movies that have been coming out lately. I haven't, but and uh, Tragedy and Macbeth is the other one that just doesn't want to show up. <laughs> I don't I... know if that's playing anywhere though <clears throat> outside of like those hardcore niche cities like LA yeah. and New York. Like I don't know anyone who's seen it. We'll just have to wait. Okay. All right. So here we you go. You were smart. When you coughed, you muted yourself. I just, I was <laughs> mid-sentence, so I had to just live with it. <laughs> no one needs to hear that for me. So there we go. Okay. Let's start the list. So number 10. Um, okay. So here, <laughs> already ever getting interesting. I put uh, Spider-Man No Way Home, which I'm debating, but what I came down because I'm really worried about the trends that this is going to set. Not that those trends haven't been there already, especially with movies like um, Space Jam 2 and what's the other one? Ghostbusters. But making a billion dollars will definitely, uh, you know, fasten those in pretty hard. Anyway, but what it comes down to is did I enjoy it? And I enjoyed it. So there we go. I put it at number 10. Uh, I put A Quiet Place Part 2 at number 9. I like that move, the first movie a lot more than you did, I think. Um, and I like the sequel. I thought the sequel was good. Number 8. I'm going with Eternals. Which is... Oh my god. Yeah. First of all, is, I haven't seen any of these movies so far. Which is a movie that <laughs> peop, has, it's like it's, nobody seems to like it. And I don't understand. Because I think it's actually one of the more thoughtful marvel films out there and i thought the story had a lot of interesting twists and turns and some really interesting characters and i don't really get the backlash for it like i'm i don't get it didn't see it my mcu loving friend said it was boring but well yeah i don't know i uh i was really into it and yeah i thought it's it's exploring some interesting themes you don't see with movies like this so i recommend it Anyway, uh, number seven, the Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch, which yeah, yeah, I've seen that one. <laughs> I uh, <laughs> yeah, I think it's. I mean, Wes Anderson is doing his Wes Anderson thing, but I think he's doing a lot of exploring different ways to tell stories in this one that I thought was really cool. Uh, number six, I have The Green Knight, which is kind of an interesting, old-fashioned fable um told with some really interesting visuals and some strong acting number five i have coda uh number four west side story um number three pig with uh nicholas cage which we didn't talk about but um i think is a really i don't know where you're at with this one but I oh, it's in my really list. Enjoyed it. Okay, awesome. Yeah, I'm a big fan of this movie. I w- I almost wanted to talk about it, but it's been so long since I've seen it that it was harder. Yeah. So. Yeah, it went to places I didn't expect, like emotionally. So, yeah, very very good movie. And then number two, I have the Last Duel, and number one, Dune. Nice, very good list. We definitely have some crossover. Um, I haven't seen many of your bottom entries. Uh, yeah, like I said, they'll probably drop off but he didn't seem super enthusiastic it's like spider-man the trends it's <laughs> standing off suck 
<laughs> Quiet Place 2 compared to the original, it sucks. In defense of Spider-Man, it's like I had a lot of fun when I was watching it. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain it's I I could I can make the decision to be really jaded and curmudgeonly about it or just, you know, have fun with it. And I decided to have fun with it. And it was, in, it was fun seeing it with a theater that was also having fun with it. I will say that. Yeah. Cause the was theater, theater like cheering and stuff. I, yeah. Not excessively, but not except. Okay. Some, so it's not like, say the right amount. Of like people screaming constantly. No, no, I would say it was just the right amount where okay. it enhances the experience rather than detracts well, i will say there's a scene in uh licorice pizza where very briefly and this is like i guess you could view it as a spoiler but it's not um john c Riley has a brief cameo just in like the background of a scene and you hear his voice and seeing john c Riley in a pta film because he was in his first three and then hasn't been in one since even though they're still friends i'd like to imagine a no way home esque. Yeah, say <laughs> Riley. But uh, I didn't do that in the theater, but in my head I did. Because nice. unlike MCU fans, I can internalize my emotions. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was mean, but whatever. Um, yeah, good list. So I will jump into mine. I'll quickly say honorable mention for Titan, uh, which I wanted to put in here, and I think it's one of the most weird and brazen and creative and unique films i've seen all year but for whatever reason didn't have the sort of emotional through line to have it make my list in a way that uh, my others did even though my number 10 will probably be pretty divisive amongst certain people all right number 10 spencer it's not as good as pablo lorraine's jackie but i still found it a riveting portrait of a woman going through a mental health crisis and uh it's also a beautiful looking film with an amazing Johnny Greenwood score. So beautiful looking films with Johnny Greenwood scores tend to appeal to me. Number nine is pig. Uh, if I had chosen nice. a little moment from this movie, it would have been the line Nick cage has where he says, we only have so many things in this world to care about, which is a line that sticks with you, even though I'm certain I'm misquoting it to an extent. Number eight, the card counter. You can critique Paul Schrader for making another variation on his, God's Lonely Man story, but I found this riveting, and uh, it I saw it at a time when I felt like I was really hungering for an adult-themed character drama, and this really scratched that itch. Number seven, Dune. Number six, The Matrix Resurrections. Number five, The Green Knight. David Lowery continues to be one of the most interesting filmmakers uh, working today, and this is maybe his best movie. I really like a ghost story as well, but the sort of epic nature of this film's quest really appeals to me number four the last duel number three west side story my girlfriend and i glided out of the theater when we saw this we were just on such a wavelength of just joy and like wow that was great number two the french dispatch it's very easy to dismiss wes anderson and say he's doing the same thing over and over again or to view this film as sort of a light quirky aside but i think the reason it looks like a light quirky aside is because wes is so good at making his films feel light and and uh, frivolous and fun to watch when i think there's actually quite a bit going on under the surface here while also just being one of the most joyously creative films of the year was very close to being my number one but when it comes to mr anderson's paul thomas has my heart licorice pizza 
number one film of 2021. Nice. Awesome list. Uh, there's a few on there I haven't seen. I haven't seen Card Counter. I don't know why, because it's been out for a while. I just honestly just kind of went under the radar, I think. It's um, not, it doesn't have a ton of champions. I've, I, I, I've been, I don't know if I was made fun of on air by it, <laughs> by Michael for it, but <laughs> that might've been when we weren't recording, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, it's not as good as first reformed and I don't think it's gonna, it's obviously not going to make that same level of impact, but I think it's quite good. And also some of it's just look at the world of low stakes poker. I was just kind of fascinated by the scenes of Oscar Isaac, just not uh, narrating his like his process. I'm like, neat. I could just sit and listen to you talk about gambling for hours. Nice. So, yeah, I haven't seen Spencer either, but um, yeah. Good That's list. the one I'm going to get made fun of. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, we'll see. Uh, yeah. So any, any, so we talked about the tragedy of Macbeth. Are there any other ones that you're kind of really itching to see that you haven't had a chance yet? Red Rocket and the Power of the Dog, probably yeah. the other, you know, Power of the Dogs. It might at this point, it almost seems like the best picture front runner, which at this we're still too early to know, but mm-hmm. it has a lot of momentum right now and a lot of uh, weight. And it it's also on Netflix, so it'll be easy enough to access. I almost saw that in uh, in theaters, but it didn't work out timing wise. So missed that. And Red Rocket, I mean, Sean Baker, I think is awesome. I loved the Florida Project, and this looks fantastic. I think the trailer is exciting and funny and. I don't know. Hearing that it's a challenging, complex morality type movie, I'm mm. in the mood for that. So, <laughs> nice. And Macbeth. I mean, it's it's the Cohen. Well, it's not the Cohens. It's the one. But mm-hmm. you know, it should be great. Yeah. Um. I just I I am excited to see Denzel kind of bite into Shakespeare. I I'm very interested to see what that's going to look like. Mm-hmm. And it just looks visually amazing. So. Did you see the quote? I think it was from Francis McDormand talking about how they played Macbeth and Lady Macbeth being essentially like if Romeo and Juliet had survived and it being like these young lovers who, you know, sort of thrust into life together way too young, way too early. That's the sort of basis of the relationship. And just reading that quote, I was like, give it to me now. (laughs) So very excited for that. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Uh, yeah. So that was, that was our top tens of the year, at least up to this point. Mm-hmm. Cause yeah, we usually don't make them for, well, I usually wait till, you know, Oscar time ish anyway. Yeah. Cause then I have a chance to actually see all the slate, the slate stuff, but mm-hmm. there we go. 2021. My list now is better than my last year's list was at this time of the year. Yes. I agree so. with you. I would say overall this year was just was better yep. than 2020. If this was my final top Realist. 10 list, I would be happy with it. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. I don't know <laughs> if a quiet place in Spider-Man needs to be on mine, but they are right now. So there we go. Okay. Well, uh, let us know what your top picks of the year are. What are the best movies you saw this year? And what was your movie going like? Did you guys go to the theaters or do we have a lot of theater goers there? Were you waiting for stuff at home? Were you paying the $25 um, watch at home fee for most of these? Yeah. 
So let us know at cinema underscore seconds is our Twitter and talk to us. Dan, you got anything going on? Um, well, I, I guess the YouTube stuff, I mean, the uh, superhero movies and Westerns video is still, still there, still trucking along. Um, pretty happy with that one. Uh, by the time this comes out, I might have a new video up, uh, which will also be a top 10 list related to 2021, but it won't be my top 10 films of 2021 necessarily, but sort of, but that'll be fun. So, uh, and a lighter film or lighter, rather a lighter video with less me trying to do analysis and more just having fun with movies I like, which is always fun to do. Nice. So. All right. Yeah. So that was our look back um, of the year. So happy new year, everybody. And we'll see you in 2022. I'm Ian. And I'm Daniel. And we'll catch you next time.